Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to episode 144 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, and briefly out of the van so he can tango through this discussion with me is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Get down! Oh my. Oh was that, was that Was that a good impression? That was not too bad. Are we in for an episode full of Schwarzenegger talk? Not at all, because that's probably the extent of how good I'm going to get. Otherwise, it just sounds like someone with issues. All right. And I already am someone with issues, so I don't want to perpetuate that. Well, I can dig starting off the episode on a high note, so good, good for you. Well, for this second week of our James Cameron Director Month series, we are talking about 1994's action comedy spy classic True Lies. Unfortunately, like The Abyss, this one isn't yet on Blu-ray either. And after this most rewatch, I can tell you that I'm craving it something fierce. But... Even in slightly less than high-def quality, this film is a total blast, and we'll get into discussing why that is very soon. But first, a quick announcement. We just want to take this time to thank our newest patron, Karsten, who came on board last week just in time to vote in January's donor pick poll. And the results of that poll are in. We will be talking about Starship Troopers at the end of this month. I guess it's the third time a charm, Patrick, because this film has been up for the vote three different occasions, but this time around, Verhoeven's satirical sci-fi classic has emerged victorious, and I know that we are both excited to dig into that here in a few weeks. Listeners, if you want to be like Karsten, which is always a good thing, and become one of our patrons, uh, you can become a supporter, too, by visiting patreon.com slash feelinfilm. And now, on to the oxymoron. Quick spoiler alert, if you haven't seen True Lies, I don't know what's wrong with you. Uh, our friends over at Retro Rewind Podcast, they gave this a very, very rare for them, five stars and unmitigated classic rating. So, I'm telling you, you gotta get this one, and you gotta, you gotta seek it out, you gotta watch it, because we're gonna spoil it, it's full of fun twists and turns it's a spy flick after all you don't want us to ruin it so go out buy it from walmart if you have to like our buddy jeremy did figure out a way but watch this movie and then come back and listen to this episode okay patch uh let's kick it off with as usual one word takeaways all right i left this viewing with a word that i think is pretty yeah, it, it, it fits pretty well. It's the word deception. And yes, it's a very obvious word, something that I think a lot of people would probably sum up. The essence of what true lies is, after all, is an oxymoron. And in and of itself, the title of the movie kind of hints at some deception. But I think for me, it res- it kind of represents in its narrative and to us what it means to play a role and to have us think one thing and show us another. On the outset, it would seem like a fun action movie, as you mentioned where our main protagonist is playing a part not only in the field, but in some ways also in his own uh, family. But the truth is, James Cameron is playing fast and loose with the truth of what this movie is actually about. What comes across as a big, fun action movie seems to me like, for the second week in a row, 
we are getting a love story at the center of this bigger story. I dig it. I think that if you haven't seen it, like Aaron said, you need to see it because I think you'll dig it too. And by you, I mean the royal you. Anybody who's listening, anybody who is anticipating seeing this movie, you're going to love it. Couldn't agree more with that, Patrick. And um, I think we'll probably get into talking about why this is a love story, I'm sure. Um, but I think you nailed it, to be honest. My word that I decided to go with is spectacle. And that's pretty much what this movie feels like to me when I'm watching it. Uh, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger as, you know, a somewhat serious spy is a bold choice, even in the early 90s. And this adds on Jamie Lee Curtis as a Susie Homemaker, another kind of role that she was not really known for at the time. You got Bill Paxton playing the sleaziest con man you'll ever see, and it's absolutely perfect. And for my money, it features probably what I would consider the most hilarious role of Tom, Tom Arnold's career. I'm, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of him. I haven't watched a ton of his stuff, but I really, really love him in this movie. So it, it is unlike anything else in Cameron's filmography. And yet, somehow, just like all the rest, it's kind of among the best of its kind. I showed this to my teenagers for the first time uh, when we watched it for the podcast this time, and, and it was such a great experience uh, to have together. I hadn't seen it in forever, and I'd really forgotten just how much pure cinematic fun it is. The chemistry of the cast is absolutely perfect. It's part action spy flick, part domestic comedy. It's 100% full of wit. It works like a charm, and I and I still think it holds up great 25 years later. We are coming up this summer on its 25-year anniversary, so that is crazy to me um, about just like realizing how old I am, <laughs> to be honest. But in fact, you know, you can see the influence this film has had in the last 24 years, 25 years, I guess, on so much of this genre, and I gotta tell you, I still think it's better than most all of the ones that have come after it. It is the pinnacle or a pinnacle of action comedy. It's bombastic. It's got iconic action sequences and antics that are unforgettable and endlessly enjoyable. And it would be very, very hard for me to compare this to Cameron's other work because of just such drastic genre differences. But for me, True Lies comes out as one of the absolute best film of the 90s and one that I will be making sure to revisit frequently in the years to come. I will not be waiting another two decades to watch this again. Hopefully with the 25th anniversary coming up, we'll get that Blu-ray release and finally see this thing in high def. My, what a what a crazy idea, Patrick. I mean, we've never gotten any other movies that are 25 years old on Blu-ray, so <laughs> come on, James. Come on, man. We know you're listening. We know you're listening. <laughs> well, let's start off here by talking about some of the uniqueness of True Lies as a spy movie and also as an action comedy. What, for you, makes this formula work so well? And is there anything that came to mind when you were watching this that you would compare it to? Well, first of all, I think that the answer is in the question and the fact that it's a spy movie and an action comedy. And... I think it's really difficult to do both successfully because you kind of sacrifice one for the other. If you have a spy movie, like let's say James Bond, um, you're not going to have a lot of comedy. You might have one line or two that might give you a giggle, but you're not going to have 
somebody like Tom Arnold's character who's hanging out with with Schwarzenegger saying the things that he does. I mean, from the very beginning, we get that sense of comedic tone, but at the same time, it doesn't go the other way where every line isn't some humorous kind of punchline. And I think that if it had gone that far, then we wouldn't have been able to appreciate some of the big action sequences and taking them as seriously as we do in some of the action movies that we know today, like Mission Impossible. And I think that Mission Impossible, you mentioned something that uh, reminds me of this. I think the Mission Impossible franchise, particularly the last three, have taken their cues from True Lies in terms of practical effects, big action sequences with a slightly humorous undertone with an ensemble cast. Yeah, I, I do too. I'm, you know, Mission Impossible is probably the easiest comparison. I think some of the Fast and the Furious more recent films, I, I could feel a lot of True Lies kind of style in there. And then I think The Man from Uncle um, would be maybe even the best example, honestly, of an action comedy. It, it really leans on its comedy more than most of these by flicks, I think. But yeah, True Lies exists in a world where it is kind of unique. I mean, it is it is truly balanced, which is crazy. Um, again, Cameron, I, I don't know how he does it. He's a magician. But for me, it's all about that pacing. And I think that's what makes it work so well. Because I remember telling you recently how one of my kind of criteria for distinguishing a five-star film is that it's a movie that has no lulls or drop-off in my attention. So, you know, if something is 90% absolutely bonkers amazing, but 10% of it I, I lose myself or I kind of nod off or get distracted, it's hard for me to want to give that that full five stars. But this, for me, fits that description even though it's almost two and a half hours long, I never felt the link. Each progression of the plot made perfect sense to me. And I felt like it was given all of the right amount of time for each specific beat of the film to keep me fully engaged and move the story along. And it's that balancing of those two aspects that I think is what makes it stand out the most. When I was talking about Mission Impossible, you know, I actually wrote my review, I wanted to be witty and funny, and so I just said, Mission Impossible says thank you. There are a couple of specific scenes in this, two or three actually, that I feel like Mission Impossible in hindsight now, knowing, kind of took directly from this movie. I mean, there is a bathroom fight in True Lies that, watching it now, I was just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh, like, that's in Mission Impossible Fallout. Like, what are you talking about? And then there's there's a bridge scene that I've always kind of remembered. Um, if you've seen Mission Impossible 3, you'll know what I'm talking about. Philip Seymour Hoffman is coming after Tom Cruise um, in his helicopter on the bridge. Tom Cruise's wife is down there kind of in as a hostage. Like It is almost beat for beat at points exactly like this moment in True Lies. And I thought, wow, what what an homage they are you know paying to this film. Uh, whether it's intentional or not, I think it has. I think it's hard for me to believe it's not. Yeah, the action sequences by themselves could be played for for most of the movie. And in my own viewing, I was more interested in the first half of the movie, much more than the back half. In fact, I remember there being a distinct drop off in my in my uh, attention span after the after the tease. 
I remember there being a significant drop off in my attention just after the uh, the striptease scene. And not that that was the highlight of the movie for me. So don't read into that if you if you are trying to. But it became what I have come to get used to, which is a lot of action. And I think what saved it for me was the fact that the humor didn't wane. Like we didn't go full on action. One of the moments that I thought was really, really, really funny was the sequence where our main antagonist is giving his speech to the video camera and the video camera's battery is dying and the guy behind the camera is getting so freaked out like he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. And he slowly lowers the, the camera. And so we see this just borderline ridiculous decree from a guy trying to talk to a an old school video camera whose battery's dying. And so it just, it takes away from the drama. And I think it reminds us of the humor that exists in true lives. Cause up to that point, we'd had a really nice balance of the humor in action. And I felt like after that, we were going to get a lot of heavy handedness and I was glad to see hints of that come back. Yeah. I, I totally know what you're saying. Um, and completely agree with the difference in like the first and the second half. Uh, it didn't, it didn't obviously didn't wane for me, as I mentioned, but, um, but I get that there is a distinctness to that. And you're right. It is pretty common of action films. There's, there's the setup and then there's the, okay, now it's time to just go balls to the wall for the rest of this movie. Um, but I think that's part of what makes it unique. As you mentioned, I mean, it, the m- scenes like that, that same moment that it, with the cameraman would have been a five second to 10 second quick joke in any other movie and then it would have moved on with the seriousness but this one lingers and it plays that out for a minute or two and and it's just that kind of a subtle difference in attention to the comedy that i think elevates it for me and and makes it kind of special absolutely absolutely now when we're talking about the action since we're on that so much of it is iconic and memorable and i'll admit even though i didn't recall going into this viewing again it's literally been probably 20 years since i've seen it the moment things started to happen or as a setup occurred something in my brain clicked and i was like oh i know what's coming i know what's coming and i was constantly just like looking over at my kids kind of gauging their reaction hoping to see them you know get excited over something that i knew that i remembered so i was wondering can you think back before you rewatched it? Was there anything you remembered going into this? Or what were the big scenes you remembered, I guess? What stuck out to you the most? And then, conversely, coming out of it, what was maybe your favorite action set piece? Going into it, I remember distinctly the mishandling of the automatic weapon that Helen drops after she tries to fire it, and seeing just how ridiculous accurate it was as it's falling down the stairs and of course at that in that moment you're going okay i'm suspending my disbelief that it's actually hitting all of these guys and they're not jumping out of the way like harry is um i remember that for sure but i think the scene that stood out to me and this is a credit to i think cameron as a as a technical director is the whole harrier sequence i don't remember that very well but I think it's pretty fantastic that there's a, there's this great shot of the Harrier as, as Harry's taken off. And that can only be done in a Harrier, in an aircraft that could take off vertically. In fact, 
as it lands after the helicopter sequence, we see this great sign in the foreground that says no parking on shoulder, which is a great little visual gag as it lands like right in the middle of this bridge. But I think that that sequence, the Harrier sequence leading over to saving his daughter and in particular, the way in which he basically just mows down every terrorist on that floor by just rotating the plane from right to left, left me going, if I'm going to have a plane, I want to have a Harrier because that that is the one that has probably the most versatility. And it's just a fantastic sequence. It reminded me a lot of the Terminator, honestly, in seeing just, you know, buildings being cra- crushed and windows breaking and bullets flying everywhere. So it's funny you mentioned that because I got to tell you a little quick story about something related. When we were watching this and it's in the scene or right near the scene um, in the sequence, I guess, where she drops the Uzi and it goes tumbling down the stairs. And of course, my kids were just looking at me like rolling their eyes like, come on, like, you know, what's that really happening? But what we also see in that scene, beginning with um, Arnold's interrogation by the terrorist and then he tells him exactly what he's going to do how he's going to kill him and he, he goes through with it and then arnold is going through the terrorists like sneaking around and just killing them all and there's one or two where he just like snaps necks i mean it is it's pretty hardcore some of the kills my son leans over looks at my daughter and i and he goes he's like the real terminator and we just both looked at him and we're like, um, yeah, yeah right. He and he yeah. goes, and he, he, he didn't get it. He didn't realize that Schwarzenegger was the Terminator when he said that. <laughs> so the fact that he made that connection is just, I think, hilarious and kind of speaks to what you're saying. Like there is a similarity in some of the action sequences here that is Arnold. Like it feels like him. Right. Um, and I just, I thought that was hilarious. So for me, I remembered the Harrier, the Harrier, the bridge, everything about the Harrier. I, I loved it growing up. Um, you know, when it came on screen, I immediately started giving my kids a history lesson, explaining to them what a Harrier was and how it worked and how it was unique and how it was like literally the only cool thing the Marines had. You know, I, I was telling them kind of about the scene as it was playing out. And then right at the end, I got to look over at them and say, you're fired right as it happened. And my daughter just like got real incredulous. And she was like, what a dad joke. And I was like, it's a good one. Um, and so we had this great little dialogue about it, but yeah, the Harrier whole Harrier sequence. I love it. I love it. It just is it's bombastic. It's so over the top. Um, but it's awesome <laughs> and hilarious. Of course, with Tom Arnold being like, <laughs> Just let him have it. You know, he's flown these. He's good. He's got, you know, a hundred of hours in the cockpit. You know, it's just been eight years, but he'll be all right. Um, and what I, the other thing that I remembered really well, um, I remembered that there was a ski chase with guys shooting very much like in James Bond in the spy who loved me. Uh, and what else did I remember going into it? I'm trying to, I'm trying to recall. Oh, and the takedown of, the, I guess, house that Simon takes Helen to. The whole setup and the way in which he uses the entire, like, organization to fake take down Simon and blow down the building and attack. I, I, I just, I remembered that and I was waiting for it. I was so anxious because I was excited about it. 
The one that I had not remembered that I kind of came away with from this viewing, knowing I'll never forget, is the horse. I'd totally forgotten that he takes a horse. And my kids love that part, of course. We're big animal lovers. And so there was there was a lot of fun had watching that sequence. And I, I kind of like that there's a predictability to this movie. For some there's there's a sense for me that it lets me engage in the movie in a different way. Um and, and I think the comedy helps i think because it's comedic the predictability works if it was a serious spy film i would want the twists and turns to completely shock me but because we know there's a comedic effect to these scenes when that horse gets ready to go and he's gonna try and jump it my daughter's saying to me oh he's not gonna do no don't try the horse don't the horse isn't gonna go don't you know the horse isn't gonna do it and of course what happens we get slow motion hooves sliding and like they're not he's not gonna jump are you crazy he's like he's a living animal that kind of moment for me is just is, is like a perfect example of what makes this so different yeah and you that scene reminded me of something you said earlier with regards to the way in which cameron's comedy lingers this is something that i'm i want to try to practice in my writing where he just lets a scene breathe and lets the punchline linger because after that like you said, we know that the horse isn't going to jump that thing. In fact, if he did, Peter would be all over this uh, this movie, even if it wasn't harmed. But the great moment afterwards is when Harry looks at the horse and says, what kind of cop are you? And it could have ended there, but he says, no, look at me. Look at me when I'm talking. I mean, he, he scolds him. And we didn't have to have that. But we did. The same thing applies for the scene with the cameraman. It's this lingering sense of being able to giggle a little bit that takes some of the tension out of what would be an otherwise just really, not really, but a pretty heavy spy movie. And I think that's where the power of levity comes in and where you find an interesting balance. I think Bad Boys is, is a movie that comes to mind where you have probably more on the side of comedy than action, but I think it's probably the closest comparison that I can make to True Lies because it's built off of comedic chemistry with a serious undertone and you know cameron i think still is superior in that regard with true lies because there's a lot more going on than just this balance there's that that interwoven narrative about harry and helen that i don't think i've seen in terms of movies like this it's it's definitely i'm, I'm starting to realize it's definitely common with cameron's movies big disaster happening and a relationship at the center of it that may or may not be related to it. And I, I, I've looked at his filmography as a director and I think I'm starting to see that pattern. I, Oh, hundred percent. I mean, we're going to be doing, you know, Titanic next week. It, this is a monumental disaster in history where thousands of people died and our whole movie is centered on one relationship. And I, he does that because he takes these big events and he grounds them in a way that we can relate. We can see these things through the eyes of people that are kind of like us. Um, and, and, you know, Helen and Arnold or Helen and Harry to an extent are kind of like us. We can see parts of ourselves like like we would make these jokes, Patrick. They're, you're not 100 percent serious in your life. Most people are not. Right? right. So if somebody actually said to you, why do they call him the sand spider? Somebody is going to say, because it sounds scary. Like in your real life, like somebody's going to make that joke. You know what I mean? And so I feel like it lets us in 
in a way that is accessible for us. Yeah. In a way that other films maybe aren't always. Right. Well, the title of this movie is a paradox, an oxymoron, true lies. And you could probably get lost in some existential fog just trying to think about this. But I, I got a question. Can you have a truly loving relationship if it is built on lies? And the reason I ask this is because the main characters have lied to each other in some form throughout most of the film, or as we learn in Harry's case, basically for their entire 15-year marriage. And it's a no-brainer that their relationship kind of starts to change once they start telling the truth. And I think there might be something we can learn from that. So do you think when Harry is telling Helen that he's always loved her, can he? If he's living a literal every single day lie. And then on the flip side of that, do you actually think this is a plausible at all for a secret agent to hide his dangerous activities from his family? I don't think it's as plausible as two parents hiding their <laughs> their secret life from other people. I think the more people you have involved, um, I can't I, I don't know if it's more or less likely that you're going to get caught. But when it comes to your first question that I think it is possible to have a loving relationship, but not if it's built on lies, if it's built on selective honesty. Now hear me out when I say this, I think that there are things about every relationship where everyone's dirty laundry doesn't have to be, ex you know, ex explored, exposed. Thank you. That's the word. And I think that's a good thing. There are things about my past and about my life that Krisha doesn't know about. And it's not because I'm keeping it from her. One, it's because it's not relevant to our marriage. Two, if I told her about some of these things that weren't relevant to our marriage, it may change her perception of me in a way that affects our marriage. But it's not that I'm hiding something. It's that those parts of my life are not who I am today. They may have shaped who I am today, but it reminds me a little bit of the stuff going on with Kevin Hart about, or with anybody who has a sketchy past, who that sketchy past comes back to be shined on them, and they have to apologize for their, their past sins or whatever. Now, I know I'm stretching this. What I'm getting to is that in any relationship, you're not going to know everyone completely and you're not meant to because I think that there's some value in the mystery of discovering more about a person as you get to know them. Now, in the case of Harry's relationship with Helen, it's it might be a little different because of the fact that what he's what he's hiding from her isn't necessarily something that he's afraid to tell her. But. It, in a way, it's kind of like Spider-Man with, with Mary Jane. You know, if they knew his relationship with Mary Jane, it was Spider-Man and Peter Parker, he would have this uh, danger on her that would not be uh, something that he'd want. So I think in some ways, Harry's protecting her. But at the same time, the longer you go with that deception, the more it feels like you're not tr fully trusting the person you're connected with. And so it's complicated, but... I don't know. <laughs> that was a long way to say I don't know. Um, <laughs> I have a podcast. To, I can do what I want. <laughs> way to get out, get out of that one. 
actually telling me nothing. Um, yeah, I, I love the superhero comparison that you're making there. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm too judgmental in answering this question, but I think that when you are in a position that Harry is in as a secret agent for your profession, this is what you do. And, or you're a superhero that you are putting that person in danger regardless of whether they know they're in danger or not. Because the facts are that if, if one of your enemies ever does discover your identity, they're going to figure out that this person you love exists. I mean, we've seen enough movies and we've, know, we've read enough stories. We know that this is how things go. And so you're protecting that person from worry, from fear, but you're not really protecting them because you're still, they're still your loved one. They're still the ultimate bargaining chip when it comes to you and what people can use against you. And so I think there's a, a sense here where I am, I'm a little judgmental and I think to myself, man, you want to have your cake and eat it too. You, you want to be, you want to have this marriage that's on your terms where when you're home, when you happen to be home, when you can, you get to be married and play dad and play husband. But there's this other life that takes priority and your wife doesn't even get to know about. And I think that that really fuels the emotional dilemma we see Harry go through and when he changes. Yeah, I, I look at their relationship and I think that what's beautiful about the movie is that we get the effect of Harry's life on Helen without her knowing where that effect comes from. And I would venture to agree with you and say that Harry's excitement, Harry's energy, and the world that he lives in outside of his family satisfies who he is. And because that satisfaction is happening to him, because he feels what I would say almost completely satisfied with this area of his life, it creates a deterrent in his relationship with his daughter and with Helen. And we see that early on. I mean, I don't know that he ever, I think we get the fact that he's enjoying what he does. Like he enjoys, you know, being able to strip out of that scuba suit and have the, the tuxedo on underneath, you know, exploding with a, a book of, uh, you know, a, a lighter or whatever it is. And yet he comes home and He's pretending that he went to Geneva or wherever, and he's got a little snow globe. He doesn't even know his daughter well enough to say that she's not going to like what he gives her. And to me, it feels like in a lot of ways, the life he lives outside of his family is the real life. And the life he comes back home to is really just something that is sort of role playing. Yes, I, I completely 100% agree. And I think, I think that is what we were both kind of saying early on in this, where we were talking about how we feel like this is equally about the love story and the changing of the marriage, um, and how these two people approach their lives as they come into the realization of what each other really wants or really enjoys. Um, as the movie progresses, as much as it is about, you know, this terrorist plot is just a backdrop. You know, it's just a means of, of taking us through the relationship drama. So I had a question. Do you think that an argument could be made that this is a movie that takes an equal amount of stakes or, or gives an equal amount of time here to 
Helen's journey as it is from Harry's. Because he's the star, but could you watch this from her perspective and get a completely different kind of take on things? I think so. This is really what drew me to the this viewing of it. It reminded me a lot of Ex Machina, where we could watch a movie from the three different perspectives and focus in on the scenes that those characters were were central to. And it showed me a more prominently about this unevenness in their marriage. You have one of the scenes that completely just like not floored me, but it surprised me was the way in which Harry didn't <laughs> the next morning after he gets back from Geneva and Helen's asking him about the convention and he goes and went fantastic. And he's just spouting off all this stuff about a sales pitch and about this new product that they're unveiling and how proud he was that they, that they, I mean, you would think that he had been in Geneva, you know, doing this thing. And it's contrasted, like even his lie is more exciting than what Helen says next. She says, oh, we've got a roof leak or we've got a problem with blah, 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 blah. And then she says, it's going to cost us like $600. And he's like, well, okay. And she goes, all right, well, have a good day. And what we get there is such a great picture of with Jamie Lee Curtis's reaction where that's that's the most exciting that her day is going to get. Her life is all about taking care of the house, making sure that things are taken care of there, and then going to work. And it leads to this other world of deception where she meets this guy named Simon. And Cameron does such a fantastic job with um, with that particular part of, of her story with the late Bill Paxton in showing just how far she has decided to go in order to experience whatever it is that she is trying to get. And so I think as I go along this journey with her, I'm trying to ask the question, what is it that she really wants? I mean, does she want more excitement? Does she want satisfaction? Does she want purpose? And I think over the course of the movie, I don't know that it's I think it's all three of those and none of those at once. I think more than anything, she wants to be a part of Harry's world because whether he's a salesman or whether he's a spy, his life to her is more exciting and more satisfying and more purposeful than the life that she has. And I, that's what I love about the back half is that there's a sense of togetherness with them where she's getting to experiencing she's getting to experience his world, but not from a place of necessarily being rescued but really from a place of saying oh i i get it and and wow that was exciting for me too yeah for sure i I completely agree with you and i noticed it i think a lot more this time around as an adult as maybe i ever picked up on as a kid i'm pretty sure that's not how i thought about this film when i watched it as a teenager you know one thing that really stuck out to me is just that there there's responsibility here on both sides that has been kind of forsaken she has not made her feelings known and clear to harry at least we don't see that so the understand he he seems completely shocked and completely flabbergasted like that there's this entirely different person living inside of her that wants to kind of come out um and i think that it's a great message when you look at this from her side of it's an advertisement in a way to tell people like talk it out like you know use your words and she's not being truthful either so despite the fact that she doesn't have anything to hide like being a spy 
she's hiding her true nature and her feelings from her husband, which is allowing neither of these people are allowing them to come together and find a way to make their marriage better for both of them. So I I love that. I love that it's equal in that way because I, you know, so many stories like this go one way or the other. Somebody is in the wrong and the other person is in the perceived right, but that's not the case with true lies. That's a fantastic perspective that each Cameron, whether intentionally or not, he is putting the spotlight on both husband and wife's responsibilities to be honest with each other at the very least about their feelings. Harry, I don't think, think you're right. He doesn't think there's anything wrong. And I think part of that is fueled by the fact that he has a life that's satisfying to him. Helen knows there's something wrong, but she refuses to say something. And so she goes looking for something that she feels like will fill that gap. But in actuality, it doesn't. Well, women can't live with them. Can't kill them. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kidding, listeners. That actually leads into my next topic. So that's why I wanted to make that quote. Um, so Patrick, some have criticized this film for being misogynistic and nasty to women. And I, I kind of, when I was watching this, I, I got a sense of the, that somebody could be watching this and feeling that way about it, mainly because of how Helen's character is handled and treated um, throughout some of the film. Is this a truth or a lie? <laughs> how do you feel about that? Do you think that the movie in 2019 would work because uh, or do you think that its content presents problems? There are two ways in which this won't work. That way and the fact that we have um, the kind of terrorists that we do in a post-9-11 world, this movie just would not work. Uh, and that's I mean, that's okay. Uh, we don't need movies like that to, to be entertaining. But to the point of the misogyny, I'm going to quote the DC universe and say that night is darkest before the dawn. And what I mean by that is that sometimes you have to go to an extreme to make a point about something else in that through Helen's manipulation and through this journey that she's gone on to be timid and unable to say anything to having to perform like a prostitute in front of her not knowing husband. I think it, that act did not help her grow up. I'm not going to make that argument, but I think the movie allowed us to see her strength in being able to, in an entertaining way, tap into a part of herself that was very much dormant. And I don't mean the sexual kind necessarily, although that could be something, but also the fact that she's strong-willed and that she's capable and that she can think on her feet. And I think one of the great moments is one that was somewhat telegraphed, but it's when, when Harry is handcuffed and he tells her he's sorry after he reveals the details of the warhead and at that point she just pops him one and knocks him down and all that emotion comes flying out i think at that moment that's when we get the real helen the one who is incredibly upset but we also see how much stronger she gets over the course of the movie and it's because she's put in situations that challenge who she is as a person not as a woman not as a as a wife necessarily, although those are they can be true statements, but as a person. And while it may be uncomfortable and it may look misogynistic, I really think it's for effect more than anything else to help us 
reinforce the idea that she is strong and that she's capable and she's innovative. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, and I'm glad you brought up the terrorist thing because that was another one I wanted to kind of ask about what you thought. You know, that is a very common trope that was played before 9-11. I mean, this is how terrorists were perceived and how they were kind of handled. It was always smuggling nukes in unbeknownst to us so they could blow up an area or, you know, I always found this interesting how they always wanted to explode one of their very limited amount of weapons to prove a point and to fearmonger. Nationalities aside being, you know, the same here, this is how terrorism can still work today. Um, so, but I understand that there's a sensitivity to the way it's portrayed. Probably the, the humor, honestly, um, is the way that people would probably take offense to. I certainly do not because I can watch this and know that it was made in 1994 and separate those things. Um, the world changed after that and it is what it is. But when it comes to Helen, you know, the, the article I had read that really drew my attention to this whole misogyny kind of accusation said, Helen is asked to pose as a prostitute and perform an erotic dance in front of a target. Let's recap. In order to spice up his marriage, the Schwarzenegger character pimps out his wife. That, to me, is completely reductionist in the way that it is oversimplifying what has happened here. I think it's very important to note that Harry is the target. Harry is the one that she is dancing for. He is not pimping out his wife to another man. He is not putting her in a situation where she is unsafe, where she is exposing herself to someone else. It is a, in his mind at the time, it is a controlled situation. It is role play. I think you said that just now, whether she knows it or not. And what's interesting is, first of all, how bad of a dancer she is. I, I, I can't like that, that whole scene just makes me shake my head because I'm just like, Oh my goodness. And I think that's the point. But what I see throughout that dance is not a person that I'm finding myself attracted to. I'm watching her and going, wow, man, look at the way that she is gaining confidence as she goes through this experience. And that's what Harry is trying to allow her to do, to play out a role and experience these things that she wouldn't otherwise in a safe environment. And yes, 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 yes. The ideal way to do this is obviously when you've talked about it, this is no, I don't think anyone is arguing that husbands should go home and lie to their wives about what they're doing. You know what I mean? And set this whole scenario up. You have to watch this movie and take it in context. He's a freaking spy. Like this is, this is all, you have to, you can't just pick and choose this little scene out of the entire movie and go like, oh, that's bad. You have to look at it with the whole film and progression of the plot in mind. And so I, I definitely don't have a problem with it. Um, Helen becomes a strong, you know, equal part of the team by the end of this. Tia Carrera's character is definitely strong and independent and there's no misogyny toward her. You know, she's, you know, kicking butt and taking names. So I, I didn't have any issues with it. Yeah, I didn't either. I, I do think there is something to be said about the manipulation of someone that you claim to to love and care about. And on one level, you could say that, you know, Harry has <laughs> he even hinted at the fact that he was going to have some fun with her. He said she wants to do a, you know have a mission. She wants to be important. Let's let's have this happen. And 
I fully admit that it's self-serving. I mean, there's there's no doubt about that. But the fact is, this is the conversation that should have taken place in a living room over a glass of wine with his wife. Hey, what are you missing out on? What is it that that you want in life? Those kinds of conversations. But I think the end result is what you said. Had she known that this was her husband that she would be dancing for and actually role playing like she did, would she be dancing like that? Would she feel that that rush? Would she feel that sense of urgency and importance in that moment? Because she wasn't dancing because she felt sexy. She wasn't dancing because she knew she could. I mean, again, I love the very beginning of that dance where she does the little arm roll back and forth and like she took like the, the whole like partridge family type thing. Because it sets up that that more semi-erotic dance. But what's happening in that scene is that as she is gaining that confidence, she has a purpose behind that. The purpose is to hide the transmitter near the near the phone or whatever. And even the moment after he starts kissing her, when she hits him with uh, with the phone, I mean, that right there tells me that she has gained enough confidence that it's just, yeah, she's going, she's there, you know. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think I think part of it is in service of showing her and uh, giving her an understanding of what he experiences, too. So now she can relate. She can say, oh, so when you told me that you weren't really with that girl, like she can have a different mindset. Like, oh, I, now I've known what it's like to go into a room where the guy is just a target. And my whole goal is to get this chip into the phone. Um, maybe he's not actually into that other person or whatever. So I think there's something that could be said about that as well. Uh, character chemistry. So this film, everybody has such great chemistry with each other. The relationships are fantastic. Do any of them stand out to you uh, above and beyond the others? Like, what was your favorite? Well, Harry and Helen's is obviously really good, but we've talked a lot about them. Aside from that relationship, I think Harry and Albert has been one that stood out to me this time around. Um, you mentioned earlier, uh, just Tom Arnold, how you can kind of, you can kind of take him or leave him. In fact, I think in our, in our group chat discussion, Jeremy had mentioned that this is probably the funniest two and a half hours that he's seen Tom Arnold be funny, uh, in his life. And he, you know, he's not that kind of, he's not one that stands out as like, Hey, you're, this is your standard comedian. You want to, you want to have in, in a movie. And when I first watched this and subsequent viewings before the one for the show, he always came across as comic relief only like, Hey, yeah, he's the funny guy. And then Harry's, you know, the straight man. But what I noticed this time around was the fact that, that Albert comes across as someone who has Harry's back. Like as much as he doesn't like this whole thing that Harry's doing by, bringing in entire teams of people to go after Simon or to set this whole thing up with Helen, he still does it. He's still willing to do it. He said, you're nuts, but I care about you enough to say, here's your microphone and here's this and here's that. And I love that. I love the fact that they've worked together for so many years that they know the how each other's, they can almost finish each other's sentences. And even there's some there's some kind of playful ignorance that, that Albert has when he finds out that that Helen's having an having an affair and he goes huh, that's great I thought you know I thought it was something else he goes welcome to the club you know it gets better after like the first one and it's it's completely ludicrous 
but that's the only way that Albert knows how to console his friend. And it's a great partnership and one that I, I really appreciated this time. Yep. I completely agree. And I think it's definitely, there's a specific kind of best friend nature to the Harry and Albert role. Um, but it really reminds me of Ethan Hunt and his team in Mission Impossible. Um, when you think of Harry, Albert, and Faisal, uh, and you have the tech guy who's doing the hacking, you know, he's your Benji. And I love that he gets his Benji moment in this to me. It's one of my favorite scenes in the film, actually, is when at the end he's going in to uh, where Dana is being held hostage and he's got the camera that has a gun in it and he's posing as the, the cameraman. And of course, he takes the key, which leads to one of the greatest lines in the film to me, which is where um, Salim says... He's trying to convince Dana to give him the key. He says, I give you my word. And I was just like, yeah, right. Like, you know, y your word means so much because truth has been a big part of this story. But um, anyway, he's playing the cameraman and he gets to drop the camera and just pop, pop, pop. He takes out three guys like super fast. Like he's clearly got skills. And I love that because it's like Mission Impossible where Benji doesn't get to wear the mask. He doesn't get to do anything because he's just the behind the scenes guy. And then Albert is very much to me kind of like um luther like luther yes uh he's very much like luther kind of that best friend role who's been there for so many years been through so much with him um and ultimately just like in the mission impossible series has to kind of go along with some things that he may not want to because he trusts his friend and his leader so i really continuously saw the parallels between those those crews it just made me smile. Um, I love the relationship. I think Albert has easily probably the over 50% of the most humorous lines in this movie. Uh, I mean, e even the very last lines in the film where he's like, you know what? I'm sick of being in the van. I've been in the van for 15 years now. You guys are going to be in the van next time. Like, I mean, it's just fantastic. He's hilarious. He's great. Uh, he's so good. Um, you know, when it comes to Dana... There's something to be said. So it's Eliza Dushku, first of all, as like a 13 year old, which was very surprising to me. She actually looks very young in this film. I there's not a lot of her in this movie. So I don't know that we have a lot to go on with the chemistry between Harry and her. I didn't not buy it. I didn't buy it. I just she felt kind of take it or leave it for me. Yeah. Outside of a great Harrier sequence where she was involved and it was a great kind of father rescuing his daughter moment. I don't know that she really had much purpose in the story. And, you know, I'm not going to say no to Elisha Dushku. I like her a lot. But when you have sort of a setup of her being kind of the angst teenage girl, and then the next time you see her is she's being held hostage in a like 24, you know, 20th floor of a building. I don't really feel much weight to that. I mean, it's dramatic and Harry takes off in this Harrier, but I never felt like she was the focal point of, of the movie. I mean, it was always about him and Helen. And so I felt like she was sort of an afterthought when it said, you know, when Cameron was like, you know, we've got this Harrier sitting around. What can we do with it now? Oh, yeah, let's bring in the daughter and let's go to town, you know, Terminator 2 style. But outside of that, I don't feel like it was very impactful. Um, and she didn't really have much of a, you know, a lingering effect for me. Well, what was impactful and I don't know if this works as a pair when it comes to chemistry. I guess you could say Harry and Simon have some chemistry here. But 
the late Bill Paxton, God bless him. This just made me miss him all over again. I, I think we're going to go through this again next week because he's in that too. Um, and it, it's maybe it's sad that he was not fully appreciated or not talked about enough or as much as he could have been until he passed away and we all realized what we were losing. This is a fantastic role. Uh, I mean, you can't watch this and not think to yourself, wow, he's stealing every single scene that he is in. And you absolutely hate him. And you're supposed to. That's the point. And you absolutely buy his character. And the especially when you see him pull up to the used car lot, you're like, of course, he's a used car salesman. So, I mean, I kind of fell head over heels all over again for Bill Paxton watching this. He he was a huge highlight for me. That mustache alone should have gotten him some kind of Oscar nomination. I mean, he is just he's great. And and you're right. The more that I see him in movies that he was in, the more I'm reminded of the fact that he's definitely versatile. I mean, I, I give him credit. I, I think he can play the same character in a lot of different. Um, he, he's not. He's he's an actor that I don't think is percept has the perception of having a lot of depth, but I think he has a lot of breadth. Like I think that he can play a number of different roles and has played a number of different roles that put him in a position of saying, you know what, I remember that guy. Oh yeah, that was Bill Paxton. Yeah, he played this and he played that, and he doesn't come across as someone who. Gives you the wow factor, but when he's not there, you know that something's missing. Absolutely, man, without a doubt. Well, if you're ready to get into connecting points, I'm ready to get into connecting points. I am. Let's do it. All right. Uh, should we spoil this? No, yeah. let's not spoil okay. this. Okay. Yes, we should. Well, everything else has been spoiled. Why not spoil our connecting point? That's a good point. We have the same connecting point again. So Two for two. Woo-woo. Let's see if we can keep it going. No, let's no. <laughs> no. We're not doing this intentionally, folks, I swear. Um, I'm going to start off, if you don't mind, because I, I have some quotes I want to read. Go for it. All right. Well, our connecting point um, for this film is Harry and Albert interrogating Helen. And I want to just read what Helen says here that kind of hit me so hard. She's talking back to them, right? As they're, after they've been asking her questions initially and they start getting personal and they're trying to just find out, has she cheated on Harry? And she says, Harry is a good man. Love that line. Love, love, love that line. And then when pressed further, she says, I guess I needed something. I needed to feel alive. I just wanted to do something outrageous and it felt really good to be needed and to be trusted and to be special. Just that there's so much I wanted to do with this life, and I haven't done any of it yet. You know, the sand is running out of the hourglass, and I want to look back and say, see, I effing did it. Quite frankly, I don't give a crap whether you understand that or not. And there is a distinct change through this moment, through from the beginning of this sentence or paragraph to the end, when she's reaching that point of saying, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to own how I feel. I'm going to own these struggles that I've been having. And so I think it's Tom Arnold who then asks her, he says, do you still love your husband? And she says, yes, I still love him. I always have loved him and I always will love him. And this sets Harry at ease, understandably so. 
and kind of puts in motion his plan to give her this adventure she wants because she's laid it out there for him that there's something missing in her life that she feels she needs. And it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And I, what I'm speaking of is really her honesty here, her coming to the table to communicate this, even though she doesn't know she is. We talked about this earlier. This is what she should be having at dinner or, you know, after dinner when they're alone and their daughter's in bed on a regular old Monday night together. Uh, home after work. This is the talk they should be having. But here, Harry realizes it for the first time, what she's been feeling. And I think he sees a side of her that they both lost sight of. And maybe he never even knew existed. And so it's definitely not an example of the clearest communication between spouses, because there are threats and lies in play here. <laughs> but even with that said, it's still super sweet and motive. And in an absurd way, which is what this film is, it brings them closer together than they've ever been before because on this adventure they're about to have, they get to be real with each other. There is a very clear parallel to this kind of conversation and what it's like to be in therapy. And I say that from personal experience that there's something safe about having a mediator, having someone that's not the person you're supposed to be talking to hear what you're saying, even if it's in front of that person. I've found that communication with my wife has been a lot better in the two, two and a half years that we've been going to therapy together because I've been able to talk through these things with her in the room to someone who has no stake in the relationship. And I think that for Helen, this is that for her. She's talking to a two-way mirror. She doesn't know that she's talking to Harry. And I think if she had known she was talking to Harry, well, there'd be a lot of other things happening there. But through all that, I don't think she would have been as honest as if she was right then. Just like I don't think her honesty would have been nearly that genuine had she been, had she known that that's who she was dancing for. This scene, I think, among the true lies that we have experienced so far is the most authentic, the most honest. And ironically, it was underneath the umbrella of yet another deception. Her talking to her husband um, when she thinks she's talking to some secret mob boss guy. And you're right, it is beautiful. I And it should be a conversation that they're having together. But I think that in the weirdest of ways, this is the next best thing. Have a conversation with somebody who's not your husband, and that way he can hear what you're honestly thinking. Because it's a safe place for her. It's not. It's a safe house, maybe, but it's a safe place for her too, in that she doesn't have to hold anything back. I mean, and her anger uh, that is completely justified really sells it, and it pays itself off for me personally when she starts just almost breaking the the glass. The mirror. Yeah, the glass. Yeah. I agree, man. It's a it's a powerful scene. It's in the mo middle of the movie, and you know it's when the seriousness overshadows the comedy. It's almost it's it's written so perfectly because you can almost feel him intentionally putting in the there's the comedy there that you know Albert tries to continue talking and taking things over, but you even get a sense that Harry is kind of like fed up in that moment. He's like, I'm done. Like, I, this is time to be real and we need to be 
honest and real here and find out what's going on. And it's one of the only times that we get this in the film. So it's really cool and um, very powerful stuff. I love what you just added there. Last thing I got to say about this movie really is that my daughter hilariously pegged this when the phone rings at the end of the movie and they're in their house, um, you know, however many months later or whatever she goes you know they're gonna say hello doris this is boris or whatever and of course that's what comes up on the phone in 2019 we would have gotten a sequel to this movie and it would have been called boris and doris and it would have been a buddy spy film with the two of them on an adventure together that they actually both knew they were having i'm so glad that we didn't (laughs) i am too and if there's anything that does not hold up now from this movie it's hacking of windows 3.1 that i thought was just completely ridiculous and hilarious but it goes along with the tone it's like maybe james cameron was like this is not going to survive we're going to increase our os at at some point so let's go ahead and just show that we're (laughs) hacking a a native version of or a a foreign version of windows 3.1 yep yep for sure uh that stuff will never quite stand the test of time i guess well Last thing on the docket, man, you want to tease what we've got coming up next week for everybody? Yeah, week three of Cameron Month is coming at you. We're going to be going back into the water. I guess we just love the water with Titanic, and that'll be another epic two-hour-plus movie that we'll get to cover. And coming up in a few days will be our spoiler-free coverage of on FF Plus of The Death of Superman, Reign of Superman double feature that, Aaron, I know you've already seen and that I'm going to see here in less than 24 hours, so be sure to check both of those out. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.